podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box to this episode. Patreon is a monthly subscription and you can cancel anytime. And PayPal is a one-time donation. Any amount is appreciated. I'm Rania Shatah and this is the Beirut Banyan. I know we recorded an episode not too long ago. Uh, I think that doesn't matter because so much has changed in the last month. And uh, I think there's a lot to talk about. Um, And I think, uh, I mean, this speaks to the moment. We're both stuck indoors, uh, in a way, dealing with an ongoing issue. And it's going to be with us for at least a few weeks, probably months ahead. Maybe just, you know, quickly ask you, I mean, your own personal world right now. I mean, how are you dealing with this just in a in a personal way? You know, honestly, I have to say, I think I'm incredibly lucky because I can do most of what I do remotely. And now I, my big problem is a time issue because I have a full-time job. My wife has a full-time job and we have these two kids uh, who are quite young, uh, two and five. And so it's, it's a matter of balancing full-time work and full-time childcare in a home and trying to avoid going out, uh, you know, except into the woods or something. Now, there are large numbers of people who've lost their jobs, who can't pay their rent, who don't have health insurance, who uh, may be unemployed, who face a very precarious and bleak future. And uh, I don't. So I feel extremely fortunate in that regard. Um, you know, it's a, um, it's an interesting, you know, for me, there's there's also a sense, a little bit of deja vu about mm-hmm. the, the early days of, of the Lebanese war in, in the 70s, you know, where it was kind of like, okay, now we can't go out. When can we go out? We don't know, you know, and yep. you can only go here and you can only go there and you could do what you want, but it's a risk. And so every time you leave the house, under, not every day, but there are times when leaving the house is... A risky thing to do. And, uh, you know, there, I haven't been through that since uh, since the 70s and 80s. And uh, there is some some deja vu about that. Yes. Of course. And you I, know, you, it's sort of a generational shift. You're, you're reminded of the early years of the Civil War. Um, I am. I, I keep going back to two events. The July 2006 war, obviously minus the bombardment. Yes. That's very, very important. This is not a violent... Yes warlike situations. No one's getting blown up. That's right. No one's getting blown up. But this kind of stuck inside feeling. And the, the other one is the, the May 2008 battles mm-hmm. and primarily in Hamra and, and western part of the city in Beirut. Sure. Yep. And that kind of lockdown. The one thing I have never experienced myself is that we're all in this together. So you don't really need to have uh, experienced this to explain it later. We're all experiencing it. And that, I think, is quite interesting because you can talk to uh, somebody across the ocean and they're dealing with it, too. And you see sort of like it's a a shared moment in history that I've I've never felt before. I mean, the only the only big division in at least in the United States is the political division over the president, you know, and and his his conduct and that there is a major divide on that. But socially, 
at a human level, uh, I think there is, generally speaking, a willingness to to cooperate. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. A shared kind of shared experience. Shared experience. And you know, I actually deliberately did not send you sort of a structure to this episode. I wanted to keep it as loose as possible. Because I think it's important to maybe let the coronavirus feed into the topic whenever possible. But also there are things happening in the background. And they're happening, I think, uh, in a way, the coronavirus has kind of shelved those issues from news sort of daily grind. I mean, one clear example is that it was just like almost like a bleep that Bernie Sanders today withdrew mm. his candidate. It almost oh, seemed I, like a like a very diminished moment in history. I, I actually think it's a very big deal because if he had insisted on continuing to contest the nomination, I mean he's he's suspended his campaign. He's going to try still try to you know get as many delegates as he sure. can to increase his leverage at the convention, which is perfectly reasonable. Um, but if he had continued to kind of challenge Biden as the presumptive nominee, the Democratic field would be much messier than it's going to be. In other words, he could he could have dragged this out in a way that was potentially costly. And he has chosen not to do that. And he deserves a lot of credit um, for not doing it. He has he has not he, he's clearly avoiding any aspect of a spoiler role of, of anything remotely approaching kind of the Ralph Nader, uh, you know, sort of spoiler thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I think he deserves credit for that. So it's, I think it's very important, actually. Important. And also, as soon as it sort of has its moment, the coronavirus is back on the news. So, it's right. you know, I think this would have been the big story. One thing about it, Trump reacted very angrily on Twitter. He had two tweets right away in which he was screaming about Elizabeth Warren denying him the nomination. And had she only gotten out, he would have won on Super Tuesday and all kind of other nonsense. Yeah. And it's it's very obvious that he is um, disappointed and frightened uh, by yeah, this. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, he did not, he wanted to run against Sanders. It's going to be very difficult to call Biden a socialist uh, because it's ridiculous. And then secondly, yeah, exactly. And But in addition to which, uh, it's going to be particularly difficult when uh, the Trump administration is going to be leading an effort to pump trillions of dollars into the economy Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in a very New Deal, Keynesian, stimulus, disaster relief way. Yes. And you can't do that and then call somebody else a socialist, especially not when it has all of the all the features of crony capitalism. I mean, you know, where you'll be picking winners and where he will he's going to try uh, having gotten rid of the inspector general. He's yeah. going to try to winners and losers. He's going to try, as with coronavirus re- relief uh, equipment and, and um, PPE and ventilators, he's going to channel it, you know, as much as possible to his friends, reward his friends, his enemies, and all this kind of stuff that he does mm-hmm. in a very, you know, sort of systematic way. Uh, and, uh, you know, at that point, you're, you're really talking about kind of a very advanced level of crony capitalism under the veneer of some kind of collective thing, it's going to be very hard to call anybody else a socialist under those circumstances, let alone Joe Biden. And that's just not going to work. But you know that I like that you chose crony capitalism because that in a way exposes two things that are happening simultaneously. Mm. 
the first is that there is an authoritarian trend that uh-huh. is absolutely, I mean, it's a byproduct of the pandemic. Yes. And we're seeing shades of it in Europe. I mean, yes. Hungary is the most obvious recent example, yeah. Yeah. which is a very frightening, it's a very disappointing yeah. and frightening development for Hungary. It's, it's shocking. Absolutely yeah. shocking. Uh, you're seeing it, shades of it here, which uh, examples that you just gave as well in the U.S. and in Israel. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, Netanyahu has used this pandemic to stay out of jail, stay in power. He's maneuvered himself into the situation where he's not even being indicted. I mean, he was going to yeah. be indicted, and on you know on on Wednesday and on Sunday he closed the courts and <laughs> right. never to reopen. It's kind of remarkable. Orban uh, in Hungary has created the first full-blown fascist dictatorship in the EU, and the EU has nothing to say about it. And it's very really remarkable. Hungarian democracy is simply suspended. And here, I think it's very clear that Trump is um, the main thing. There are two things. One is there's this purge going on of, of um, you know, layers of accountability, particularly inspectors general uh, mm-hmm. who are being removed and, and other people who are being removed, this purge of um, people within the executive branch who are there to hold him accountable and to watch over what he does. And right. he's not you know, getting rid of them. Then the other thing is this dry run that just happened in Wisconsin where there's an effort by the Republicans in Wisconsin to use the pandemic to try to suppress the vote sufficiently to ensure that they win. Because what we have in this country is a very strange situation of protracted minority rule. There are, by every count, considerably more Democrats than Republicans. But between the federal system and the Electoral College, which apportions votes for president in a very weird way, gerrymandering, other forms of voter suppression. And the fact that Republicans, while there are many fewer of them, they are much more committed and they're very good at mobilizing their base, making everything a national election. Uh, You know, every local election is a national election. And every national election is about these issues that have nothing to do with presidential power, like abortion and marriage and right. education, which are none of which have anything to do with the presidency, right? But it, 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 it gets people to the polls. So they localize in national elections and nationalize local elections and drive people in fear of their identity to the polls. Mm-hmm. And they're very good about getting their people out. Mm-hmm. So what it, I think comes down to at this point in a very funny way is that whenever Democrats are either angered and afraid enough or inspired as they were twice with Obama Mm -hmm. to come out in big numbers, they win. But when they hold back, like the two midterms under Obama, where he wasn't on the ballot, they stayed home, then Democrats lost twice. Or with Hillary Clinton, who did not inspire a lot of um, Democrats at all. Mm -hmm. And there was a great ambivalence about her. And uh, so between these weird anti-democratic structures, some of which are historic, some of which are are created, Mm -hmm. and the question of turnout, you you get this minority rule thing. I think the Republicans know very well that for Trump to continue in office, they're they're going to have to have a low turnout. They cannot afford, if it's a high turnout election, they lose. This is as simple as that. And I think they are starting, and you see this in Wisconsin, starting to think that the virus, for all the harm it's going to do Trump, and it is going to do a lot of harm to him, yet 
it could be used to create so much chaos in the election and 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 suppress yeah. turnout to the point this is the idea i think it's if it's not plan a it's certainly plan b and wisconsin was a very obvious dry run and the 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 trump card that they have is the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is going to clearly going to agree to everything that that that, that uh, the Republican Party wants. There, these um, five people are not uh, proper jurists. They are hacks, in my opinion, very partisan. And uh, I don't buy the idea that this was an honest philosophical, um, you know, that it was a, a narrow technical issue. It was not, in my view. And also the idea that this this is just the natural product of different judicial philosophies is also wrong. Um, it, I, I think it's all outcome driven, in fact. And this goes back to Bush v. Gore, where the yes. Democrats took a Republican position, Republicans took a Democratic position oh. because they were interested in the outcome. So yeah. I'm not you know, But there's also something quite interesting. Both Biden and Bernie mm. were criticizing the primary process for the, in Wisconsin. Yeah, especially Bernie. Biden was was ambivalent in in the end, and he said it should be left to um, the state. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bernie was was very against the vote going ahead. I I think he thought that he needed more time, maybe, that he could could benefit from a little more time. Uh, And I think you can see that he must know. I mean, the reason that he pulled out today is he's seen the exit polls internal exit polls in his yeah. campaign. And he's, all right, I've just been did another defeat. There's no point. Um, Biden adopted the, the don't vote thing kind of late, but uh, mm-hmm. he did, he finally come to it. Yeah. And, and so that, there you have the shades of crony capitalism, at least exactly. America's experience with it, which is of course relative compared to what the Middle East has been going through. Oh, uh, well. And, and <laughs> We saw, I mean, a, a, an unfortunate hiatus yeah. with what we were both witnessing the past five, six months. And our yeah. last episode is what we were talking about, that sort of political and economic uh, revolt. And mm-hmm. um, that's been really put on hold. Uh, yeah. Just in less sort of... In, less in Iraq, by the way. The Iraqi Shia mm. youth are still, I mean, it's greatly reduced, but it's not sort of indefinitely suspended like in Lebanon. They're still on the streets. They're still right. mad. Uh, I'm not saying the Lebanese aren't mad. I'm sure they are mad. But it, it's sort of interesting. There have always been uh, people used to conflate the two too much. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and it's interesting that, that uh, in Iraq, there's still there are still protests, you know, no matter what. It is remarkable. Actually, if anything, the Iraqis have been paying a much higher price than yes. than any. I mean, it's it's a very incredible sort of. They've push. given hundreds of lives now. The, the protesters. Yes. They've been they've been shot. You know, yeah. down the leaders targeted specifically snipers, getting them yeah. one by one. The logistic networks for support targeted mm-hmm. by the uh, by the Hashdishabi groups and and others. It's pretty but, gruesome. But, but looking at it from 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 the states, sort of, yeah. sort of, the acknowledgement that at least for for good reasons, for the right mm-hmm. reasons, the momentum mm-hmm. has diminished. This is purely yeah. out of, I mean, saving lives. There's no way to Absolutely. keep doing this at the moment. Of course, I, it's only rational. Sure. And I've asked this question in different ways to different guests, and I just wanted to maybe gauge your mind on this. Uh, do you think this pandemic uh, is a potential fatal blow to this round 
of momentum. And that maybe weeks from now, even even though the grievances are still felt, and you said it a moment ago that even if they've gone home, they're still angry. It doesn't matter whether they're on the streets or at home. The, the demands have been left unmet. Is there a chance that you will see the authoritarian aspect and maybe this sort of gradual giving up for the moment, only purely because the stakes are... Yeah. It's just okay, it's so very difficult. Yeah. I understand exactly what you're asking me. It's the right question. Mm. But I think the answer is I never believed that the protests as such, as they're structured now, mm. uh, um, and so sort of in the moment were going to lead to a solution or or a major change that would improve things for reasons we talked about in our last uh, uh, discussion. Mm-hmm. And I always thought that they would become ultimately exhausted mm-hmm. or in some other way just simply worn down, that the blob, the the, the kind of corrupt political, in many ways, confessional or sectarian, identitarian blob mm-hmm. would, would manage to absorb the blows yes. and that it would, it would survive that moment. And, and, uh, but that didn't, that, now that doesn't mean that, uh, they're, that they were pointless or that they lose in the long run. Let me explain for a second. Mm-hmm. So, so, but because of that, because I always expected the blob to prevail in the short and maybe even the early medium term, you know, mm. Um, mm. because of the huge advantages the blob has, uh, you know, uh, doesn't, it doesn't, I, I don't think this is sort of a, a, a negative outcome in the sense that mm. I don't think another five months or four months of protests would have produced a breakthrough. Uh, in terms of what the protesters were looking for. I doubt it. I mean, they they could have um, sharpened their demands, started talking about the Constitution, started talking about splitting Parliament into the lower house and the upper house, getting chipped away at at the confessional system, getting more direct democracy uh, with proportional representation and, you know, really kind of empowering the voters as mm-hmm. as citizens rather than as you know clumps of identity groups or something like that yeah this would have been great but it's it's a tall order now what i think and what i said last time is that the real impact the 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 the, the prospect that the, the this thawra uh, if you want to put it that way uh which i think is a perfectly good way of putting it has to revive Lebanon and, 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 and restructure the country is essentially cultural and attitudinal and long-term. And as I said, I think it, it, it revives the idea of Lebanon as a, as a modern national project that transcends subnational identities, mm-hmm. confessional, sectarian, even maybe in some cases ethnic, uh, these little subnational identities which, of which Lebanon, the national pact, pieced together. Yes. You know, uh, and I think, as I said to you in our last conversation, that that idea, which was around in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s and, and just it, it, it was presumed by most people, me included, to have died in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and the noughts and that it was just dead and buried. And obviously it isn't. And people from all walks of society 
and from every part of the country really do suddenly apparently believe in this. And that the fact that that ideal has traction and mm-hmm. can push back in a brave, principled, constructive, passionate way against yeah. the narrow little interests of these parochial leaders and Zaim and warlords and you know feudal bosses and landlords and whoever the hell they are, you know, people with money or guns or both, um, that in, in the long run, that that can transform the country because it can create a different narrative. Mm. And then the narrative can develop over time and create political structures that are not protests, ad hoc protests, but that are actually, um, you know, sort of political entities with leaders and accountability and mechanisms to get people elected and right. to make demands that are not, you know, stop stealing or all go away, you know, which, you know but to say, no, you know, article uh, 26 of the Constitution, you know, Article 82 of the Constitution, whatever it is. I'm not, I may even have misremembered those numbers. But the point is that there are these, there, there are these agreements. And, and the un, uh, ultimately, the, the, the really important thing also is um, completing the tariff process, which is kind of unfulfilled, at least in terms of getting rid of some of the uh, outstanding militia groups like Hezbollah's independent militia, and all of that needs to yeah. be done. So you need you need a, a a political movement to do it, and it wouldn't. I never expected this. You know, my my attitude from the beginning is this thing is great, but it's not going to succeed. And I, when it survived and continued over months, I said, wait, I'm wrong. Actually, mm-hmm. it can succeed, but it can succeed in the long run by by creating a cultural shift, an attitudinal shift, a new sensibility, a new narrative about Levant that, that is, you know, e pluribus unum, transcendent, etc. So I think that's still possible. I don't think, I, I think that's entirely still on the table, whether people are on the streets or not. That point right. has been made. So I, I like that, that. In other words, the coronavirus, in a way, is irrelevant because that change takes time regardless. And whether or not the world is on hold for a few months, it's irrelevant. This process is a very long and difficult. There's something there that means. Yeah, exactly. But the hard work hasn't started yet. I agree. That's exactly the argument I'm making. And what I'm sort of saying is that this is uh, inspirational and crucial and kind of magnificent, precisely because it's the unanticipated resurrection of the noble part of the Lebanese national project. You know, there's there's the quotidian part about all these little communities surviving without yeah. killing each other, literally killing each other right. in, in a kind of loose competition, cooperation, whatever. It, and that's been there, you know, since yeah. the war ended, since 1990, mm-hmm. right, with the breaks. Uh, the, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. But uh, generally speaking, that that part of the, that idea of Lebanon is something that kind of sort of works and people can kind of sort of live. And, you know, and it's OK, yeah. you know, it's like. It's always yeah, kind it's, of sort of a good yeah. place to live yeah. just because the Lebanese are great and Lebanon is great, but like the country doesn't really function. But the point, right. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't. But the point is, there's this, there's this, you know, noble transcendent vision which which was there from the beginning, and uh, boy, it, it, we now know it's not dead at all, and that's an amazing thing to discover. 
that is a really inspiring thing to discover. And, and I don't, I mean, clearly this is a generation and not just one, but a couple of generations, right? This is, this is a, a Lebanese population, mm. significant enough numbers of which, I, I would say clearly a majority of which yearns for that. Yes. Boy, you can, you can work with that over time. You know, yeah. don't tell me that's irrelevant. You know, when the majority wants something more in, in a in a aspirational way for the whole country, for everybody, yes. you yeah. know, against the elites, against people who steal, against people who, you know, throw their weight around and have their narrow little agendas, you mm -hmm. know, or the agendas of very, you know, think think of, of tiny communities as opposed to everybody else. No. There's another whole other way of thinking about the country, and it's not, it's not yes. dead. It's not in suspended animation. It lives. It's alive. You know, it's yeah. vital. Absolutely. It gets people to. People are willing to risk their lives, their freedom. They're willing. I mean, there was no guarantee that people weren't going to get shot. You know, there was no. At some point, there was violence on those streets. You know, especially when, when the Hezbollah and Amal guys started coming out on their motorcycles. And then there was always the chance of the army at some point, you know, and, and that was no joke, you know, that's not sure. something you just do. And uh, you certainly don't do it for weeks and months on end if yep. you don't passionately believe in it. And it starts off with the stop stealing stuff, but it quickly becomes a coherent narrative about we, we're living in one country, but we want another country that right. we all kind of imagine as a, as a different way, and it's rooted in history. It's rooted in the national um, narrative and the national experience in a very deep sense. And, and that is profound. You know, that is so powerful. That is well said. And, you know, even though there are these, these are minor but important uh, disappointments, for example, the, uh, the army general that was let go today, the same yeah. person that probably killed the one the one yep. protester that was shot during the protests and that, i mean and i know that looking at it long term mm -hmm. it's sort of there's room for hope but it's just the fact that there is that kind of ability to take advantage of the yeah. pause no it's it's very painful uh, you yeah. know also if you look at one of the things that's coming clearer is mm -hmm. how government and and Therefore, also in this case, the whole socioeconomic elite is going to try to get out of the debt crisis, right? Yeah. So we're starting to we're starting to see how that is, mm -hmm. and uh, the proposals that are being worked out with the IMF, right? Because they need they need ten or fifteen billion dollars from the IMF over the next five years yes. minimum, right? Minimum. Yeah, and uh, you know actually. I mean, they probably need like 25 billion, but yeah. but, but whatever. I mean, uh, it's it's a, it's these are all huge numbers. Mm -hmm. the, the plan basically is to make the biggest depositors and and creditors take a 10 percent haircut on their deposits. Yeah. But yeah. after that and, and supposedly protect the ordinary creditors mm -hmm. and depositors. Mm -hmm. No, but I think it's very clear that once that's done and and, uh, you know, beyond protections for modest amounts, 
of bank deposits, really modest amounts of bank deposits, mm-hmm. uh, that it's going to be the ordinary people paying the rest of that bill. Yeah. You know, in other words, that the elite will pay collectively 10% of their big deposits. They won't even notice it, honestly. That's they won't true. feel it. It'll, it'll, it'll be, you know, it'll, they'll just take some like uh, heartburn medicine and they'll be fine. And then a little down the road, you're going to find out that the, the lira is devalued hugely, yep. that government spending has to be cut, that this is going to come with austerity programs that are going to be really painful. And the majority of the cost of this is going to be paid by ordinary people. And that's hidden in the way in which it's being presented as a plan that combines the haircut at the very top with external support in order to protect the assets of ordinary people. But what is missing is who pays that the extra, you know, they're going to borrow 10 to 15 billion. So who's going to pay? It's not going to be covered by that 10% of them. Who's going to pay ordinary people are. And one way or another, ordinary people are going to pay it. And this is going to be, this is not a population that can afford to pay the bill that they did not accrue. The ordinary people did not assemble this bill. It's not their bill to pay, but they're going to pay it. Absolutely. It's very, very uh, sad. I I mean, this is outrageous. It's outrageous. You know, best of circumstances is a very painful process, and that's mm-hmm. a very sad reality. And I think, if anything, this well, this it pandemic can help, it can help to 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 focus people's attention, remind them, and give right. them long term determination mm-hmm. that uh, in the future this kind of Ponzi scheme, pyramid uh, robbery of people is not going to be allowed. Anymore, the the, yes. the the idea that the Banque Liban and the big depositors and the private banks will all collude to, you know, on these ridiculous uh, interest rates for big depositors and yes. even for ordinary depo- and and that the whole thing just becomes a way of funneling money up and accumulating ridiculous amounts of debt, and then in the end, the ordinary people end up paying like at least half of it, and they benefited virtually not at all. This is not acceptable. It's and I don't know true. if I don't know if it's being pick, picked up by my microphone, but New York has been sounding like this yes, for a long time. Up, I know. Well, it start DC is getting more and more. So I, yeah, I, of course that's the other thing is that Lebanon is going in all likelihood. I mean, heaven forbid, but in all likelihood, all countries are going to be hit with coronavirus. Social distancing. I mean. Part, the large parts of Lebanon are very densely populated. Yeah, Social sure. distancing is going to be very difficult in like Rasbeyrut and Ainem Raisi and these kind of places where, and, oh, and let alone the kind of uh, slum areas. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Palestinian refugee camps, for example, or yeah. in the parts of the south, uh, forget it. You know, there's no social distancing by foot. And there's no way that the country is ready for this. It's, you know, it's not as badly off as Venezuela, but it's it it's it could hit Lebanon really hard unless a a treatment is found. I, I mean I think the, the 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 only real hope for um the population, especially the vulnerable population of the world, is that sooner rather than later an effective treatment is because vaccine is going to take a long time. It's going to take a year. But a treatment yeah. might be yeah. in months. You know, and, yes. and those are testing all kinds of things, including Trump's, um, you know, pet hydrochloroquine and, you know, whatever his 
friend's cell or whatever it is. I mean, maybe, you know, it's a Hail Mary, you know, but at some yeah. point, I think a treatment may, might well be. And, and at that point, there's some, if it's, especially if it's cheap to produce, then you might yeah. escape it. But if not, it's going to be very, very, very bad. And uh, by the Absolutely. way, I don't know if you know about this, but there is a, um, a real problem in the Saudi royal family right now. There's 150 Saudi royals are infected, oh, including really? some very senior people. And it's kind of out of control. Oh, and wow. it's not in the general population, but, you know, so, so like this has come to the Middle East. Iran is very heavily hit now, not all of Saudi Arabia, but the parts of the royal family are slammed. It's a very big number because, wow. you know, there are thousands of these guys and 150 of them is a big number, you know, and basically once it, once it starts circulating, uh, it's, it's very infectious. Exceptional infectious thing with a very long uh, incubation period and lots of uh, asymptomatic or lightly symptomatic people who don't think they have a problem are just like breathing on everybody else and this is very bad. So um, I think I think it's it's really important that oh by the way another great scam in Lebanon right now uh, the coronavirus scam is is the quarantines right so people are being quarantined yeah. right now. What happens when they're quarantined? They have to go to to pay to stay somewhere. And you know who owns those places? Is the friends and relatives of the ministries and the ministers and the government. And they are making a killing. And, uh, you know, they're charging prime rates. I mean, this is really outrageous. I'm, I'm not this, I'm not joking at all. Like there are people. In, in Lebanon, close to parts of the government and other senior people who are cleaning up on the quarantine thing, charging top dollar yeah. for accommodating people who have no choice. I mean, they're required to yeah. go to these places and they can't shop around and they can't say, well, I'll give you half or no. And they're going to be truly charged. And it's uh, it's so cynical. It's so, it's so like, how do I squeeze the last, you know, yeah. the last stir out of this sure. thing? How do I squeeze the last drop? But I think this, this, which is shared across the world right now, that kind of authoritarianism in all its different flavors, I think is the most, that's the biggest byproduct of the moment. And At the moment. A, yeah. And I think it's, it's a, it's very difficult to contain that. I mean, and you're saying the way you just described it right now. I mean, this is an this is a horrible reality in Lebanon, and then uh, and then there's really no there's no ability to kind of rein that in, and right. it's uh, yeah, this is a very unfortunate. Um, well, I, yeah. Here's one thing. Um, I think the long term impact on mm. on the whole world mm. uh, will depend a lot on the effect that the pandemic has on the challenge that parochial nativist nationalism has made to the post-World War II and especially post-Cold War, yeah. uh, multilateralism, internationalism, economic globalization, whether you like it or not, all that sort of, you know, integrationist mm -hmm. tendency for mm -hmm. all its good is it has much of both, but it has been the dominant thing until this sort of 
uh, you can call it populism, you can call it nativism, you can call it fascism, you can call yeah. it whatever you want, whatever it is. That stuff is getting a shot of adrenaline right now because everyone's saying, oh, they are bringing it here to us. We need a borders, travel bans, da 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 da, da. Yeah. My, And it could be that it is another huge blow to yeah. international cooperation. My feeling is that in the long run, though, it's going to be very hard. That Actually, this virus, as people soberly understand what is required, uh, to defeat it and control it, that both the medical and the economic solutions require cooperation between Absolutely. borders. Absolutely. And therefore, with some tweaking and some renegotiating, especially China's role in the WTO. I mean, it, it, China is treated as if it were Laos. You know, it's still, it was, it was brought into WTO as a developing country. Mm -hmm. It's clearly not a normal developing country. It's clear. I mean, the, as I say, that it gets the same terms as Burkina or 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 Jordan or something is just silly. So there are obviously, and and I I do think you know, countries are going to want to who can afford it are going to want to stockpile strategic supplies. That they said they would, they didn't. Finland has excellent stockpiles. They didn't opt out of international cooperation and globalization. They just stockpiled some some stuff, and and so uh, all of that is. There are tweaks. My my feeling is that uh, in the end, um, people are going to realize that borders don't help you. Racism doesn't help you. Nativism doesn't help you. Mm. Saying, well, you know, we, we won't have it here because they will be over there is just absurd. The new White House um, press secretary, this lady, um, has uh, this famous quote that she has from February saying, oh, with President Trump, it's so great. We won't have the virus here and we won't have terrorism here as in the bad days of obama as if you know closed borders the wall the will of the dear leader or something can prevent a virus from coming nothing nothing can only one thing can which is international cooperation that that can help a lot travel bans honestly you know in a limited time judiciously applied could buy you some time but that's mm -hmm. all can do. There are no solution. Whereas international cooperation can, in fact. And by the way, if you if you do that and buy some time and then squander that time, sit around doing nothing with it and telling everyone it's not a problem, it's not coming here, it's one guy and everything's done. Sure. You know, there was no point in having that ban. Yes, it sure. probably bought you a few weeks, but you didn't use the few weeks. Well said, well said. And I, I think all the more important is that even these countries that have sort of promoted borders to a degree, look yes. at what happened to Look what happened to Boris Johnson. Oh, I mean, exactly. Yeah. He's now in intensive care. And I mean, yeah. this is a country he, that... He, he's a very good example because he laughed off the whole thing. Sure. He just said, I'm shaking hands and shaking hands is good and da-da-da. And he's, he's an ICU. Yeah. And, uh, you know, yeah. it's, it's, you know, Trump is the most well-protected person because everyone who goes to see him needs to get the five-minute Abbott test or 10, 10, 15 minute Abbott. The negatives come in 13 minutes and the positives come in 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. You can't get in to see Trump without mm -hmm. taking that test if mm -hmm. you're coming in. And the people who work around him need to get tested weekly. So he's, he's he, you know, yeah. He, he's pretty, yeah, he's pretty yeah. well well protected from this. But you need something like that. You need, you know, to make sure that everyone who comes in the door doesn't have it insofar as humanly possible. Well, that's, you know, that can be done for a few individuals, but, you know, obviously it's, it's, no, you no, know, not even 
the rich and the powerful. Sure, that's true. You know, Hussein, I wanted to dance back to an earlier part of this discussion, and it kind of is its what we intended to discuss the last time we spoke for a follow-up mm-hmm. episode, and it, it is probably the one issue that will survive all issues. It'll outride the coronavirus pandemic. It'll outride other, way beyond Biden and Trump's election later this year. I'm assuming it's still happening. All that stuff. It'll, it'll, it'll happen. It'll happen. What it, what it looks like after the Wisconsin debacle, mm-hmm. I can't tell you, but there'll be an election. Yeah. I mean, so, would you yeah. need, only Congress could reschedule it, and the House is not going to agree to reschedule it. So right. that's it. So you know, unless unless there's like a million dead Americans, which which probably won't, hopefully no, won't. I don't. But, I don't think so. But the the one issue that I think you're maybe the one expert I would like to sort of gauge your mind on is the Arab-Israeli conflict I and know. the Palestinian cause and all that stuff that was kind of being discussed a bit several months ago. The deal of the century and all that blah blah blah. Um, yeah. You know. I want to ask you not the generic stuff, not yeah, the, yeah. but the, the stuff that's always been just that that's not important, I think, at the moment. People people watching this yeah. have that. They know that. They know that. I want to ask you about, I think it was last night or maybe early this morning. Mm-hmm. This uh, Benny Gantz's party, I forget the name now, called Blue, Blue and White. The blue and white, yeah, exactly. And, of course, Likud, mm-hmm. uh, at least expressing an, a tacit agreement with Labour's endorsement. Yeah, they made an agreement. Yeah. Of, but um, it's, it hasn't happened, but, yeah. hasn't happened. But let's just, you know, project a bit that... It will probably happen. I, I think probably. it will happen. Yeah. yeah. And, and this sort of understanding that an annexation of most settlements is going to become Israeli policy. Well, there is a problem potentially mm. with that. Mm. It, it will become their policy, but mm-hmm. will they try to do it? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the way they will do it is the same way they did it with uh, East Jerusalem, which is to not annex it formally, like mm-hmm. was done mm-hmm. with Balai, where there's an actual law in the Knesset that says, we, the state of Israel, annex this territory. Mm-hmm. That, that was, mm-hmm. was done with the Golan Heights. Yeah. East, that was never done with East Jerusalem. What was done with East Jerusalem was the Israeli civil law was extended to the entirety of what Israel defines as municipal Jerusalem, right? Yes. So what, what the Israelis would do is extend Israeli civil law to the all the settlements that they want to take and keep and to the Jordan Valley and whatever, whatever they want. OK, and that would be the de facto annexation um, in all likelihood. So the East Jerusalemization of 30 or 40 percent of the West Bank or some number like that. Uh, I don't know that Trump would want them to do this in the middle of the coronavirus crisis. Mm, mm. I, think, I think they, I mean, he kind of wanted to open the door for this, but I think he thinks of it as a second term project. Mm. But the first term project was to change the American policy, change yeah. the American discourse, create the space for annexationism, anti-peace, anti-two-state solution, you know, pro-greater Israel, 
in which did not exist, you know, before Trump was elected. I mean, some really strange, crazy people, you know, Christian fundamentalists, two or three senators, Inhofe maybe, and one or two other crazy people, and um, pretty much no Jews in, in Congress, in the House or Senate were believing in this. And mm. I mean, it was a very fringe thing. Now he's shifted the Republican Party and, you know, not too many Democrats, but that, I mean, it, it remains to be seen whether uh, once they're in power, they would how far back they would be willing to shift because it's, you know, it's just hard to, it, it depends a lot on um, Israeli politics as well. Um, but I think that that goal of uh, changing US policy on Jerusalem, changing US policy on annexation in theory, changing the US relationship with the Palestinians to zero, uh, trying to yep. get everyone to reconceptualize the Palestinian national movement as a bankrupt business to be liquidated at pennies on the dollar, as they do in the real estate industry. I think that was the idea. Yeah. And my sense is that if everything was going really well for Trump right now, maybe he would say, all right, now go ahead and, and take some of it. Mm. My feeling... Yeah. And it's a feeling. I don't know what this guy thinks. I mean, it's very hard to understand. You know, it's very hard to know. My sense is his plate is full. That he doesn't need another headache, and it would be a headache because I mean, you know, like the the even the mo pretty much the most pro-Israel Jewish Democrats in Congress are not in favor of his plan. Right? His plan was not like. The, the mainstream Jewish groups, a very interesting split. Of course, Zionist Organization of America loved it. American Jewish Committee welcomed it. APAC was, yeah, I mean, they came around to it, but you could see they were very uncomfortable. Mm. In, in some weird way, they were not very happy about it. And uh, they still are, like, uncomfortable. ADL doesn't like it uh, at all under Jonathan Greenblatt. And, and so very large amounts of uh, Jewish Americans, including very pro-Israel Jewish Americans, still think a two-state solution is a good idea. And yep. they would want Israel to, to, to be able to keep a lot of, you know, things, but they don't think this, like, unilateral annexation is a good idea. Yeah. Okay. Under, so there's a lot of opposition to this as well. And um, I think there's... Also, the Republican internationalists, the Lindsey Grahams of this world, are not convinced either. It's the fundamentalists, the Christian fundamentalists in, in the Republican Party who love it. You know, they're, they're this real constituency. And the Israelis. Uh, I, my sense is that the coronavirus is, and the economic collapse that it is inducing it has, is making Trump extremely miserable. Yeah, he gets to pose the, as a wartime leader. Yeah. He gets to and all of this stuff he gets to you know an hour on tv every night talking whatever lies he wants to talk an unbelievable amount of garbage uh, yeah but at the same time you know his whole rationalization for being reelected, which was the economy is in tatters yes and it's going yes. to be very easy to make the case that he bungled this and it's a disaster and he owns it he's he's in big trouble i don't think he needs another big problem. And I think it, it is more likely that he would say to Netanyahu and Gantz, look, you guys are not in a position to do this. You need a government majority that really wants to, okay, take some very small thing or something like that, mm -hmm. maybe Maliadumi or something, but not, nothing more than that. And uh, leave it if I get reelected, when I get reelected. 
because he doesn't contemplate anything else, uh, you know, then we'll look at it again and we'll see what we can do. And maybe at that point, the Palestinians will surrender and we can make an agreement with them at all. So I think it is possible under the circumstances, Trump will say, please don't do this. Now, there is the possibility that they will say, that's great, <laughs> and go ahead and do it anyway. And they could try to call his bluff and right. just do it. Right. Uh, what would he then do? I don't know. So if they want to really, you know, give him the middle finger, they could. And it's also possible I'm misreading him. It's possible that he would say this is great. But I kind of think he may feel that it's he's done enough for the first term. You know, I, I want to take it sort of a, a slightly different direction that yeah. you have a, a very, very, very friendly American administration yeah. to Israel, very friendly, and Israeli. you just sort of, yeah, and you just sort of laid it out there that this oh, is yeah. a yeah, it's very pro to the point that American Jews in Congress are not comfortable. Are, so, um, yeah, it's a, it's pro annexationist because its thinking is shaped by either pro settlement uh, Jewish people like Kushner and Greenblatt and and Friedman, mm -hmm. or more, but much more, by the by the Christian fundamentalists, by the apocalyptic right. Pence's friends, yes. John Hagee and all of these weirdos. Uh, and because of that, they're less pro-Israel and more pro-annexation. I mean, they want to, they want the war, they want the apocalypse, they want right. the second coming. Yeah. But I'm, I'm curious about, about the, uh, the current situation where Israel finds itself very cozy with the White House yeah. and, and the U.S. administration. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And something that maybe you could shed light on, and I'm, I'm not well versed on this, and maybe you mm -hmm. can kind of uh, guide me through this, that the last, at least the last decade, aside from the anecdotal sort of uh, coverage, that there's been a, a warming up from some Gulf countries, yes, yes, not in direct relationships, not 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 nothing yes, that's sort correct. of out in the open, but there is a cozying up, yeah. and you see sort of symbolic gestures here and there, uh, and cooperation behind the scenes on certain things, on intelligence and cyber warfare, things like that. Right. So yeah, I'll describe it to you if you want. There's one thing I'm curious about, and maybe it's the the thing that doesn't add up to me. If you have a very uh, comfortable relationship with certain Gulf countries. It's comfortable. not very comfortable. So, sorry, let me, yeah, yeah, I'll rephrase it, sorry. Uh, an unusual. Very, co very, very cooperative. It's not very comfortable. It's very Absolutely. cooperative. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I should, you're right. And that, a an unusually cooperative environment yeah. for, for the it's last. It's quite uncomfortable, but it's cooperative. Well said. Cooperative, uncomfortably yeah. cooperative. That's true, yeah. actually. Yes. My my normal term for it is uh, friendship with uh, is benefits without friendship. <laughs> it's actually well said. Yeah. So that 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 that's, that's, that's what you have. And I'm curious, from your side, from the way you've been sort of looking at this issue, why aren't there sort of any any demands? on the cooperative end for oh. a for an end to this conflict meaning okay. meaning that israel finds itself now with certain relationships in the middle east mm. it has mm. uh, it has very comfortable ties to america um, mm. it is in a position now to end that conflict yeah. and it kind of re and sort of norm normalize itself in the in the region yeah. what yeah. is the what are the stumbling blocks to get, to getting there okay the, the, here's the thing 
Now, hmm. let's start with the Israelis and the Palestinians, right? Yeah. The Palestinians have no leverage over the Israelis. Right. There is no way for them to put pressure on them, right. because the only time the Israelis pay attention to the Palestinians is, is when Palestinians are using armed force and violence, and then the price for Palestinians is higher than the price for Israel, so it backfires. Yeah. None of the other methods work. Internationalization doesn't work. The boycott doesn't really achieve anything. The European pressure is very limited. Uh, the protests and all the Samud stuff is, uh, you know, it keeps the ball in the air, but it doesn't pressure these. So the Israelis can, whenever they want to pretend the yeah. occupation is even going on, they can do it and get away with it, which is amazing. But the power asymmetry is maybe the greatest in any long-term conflict between two national peoples in the modern era. I can't think of anything like it, right? I mean, you've got on the one side a very powerful, small but powerful nuclear-armed state yeah. uh, and then a group of people who've never had so much as a tank among them, you know, and, and never had a state or anything like that. So it's, it's an incredible um, power asymmetry. So it's very hard for them to put any pressure. And, and then the Israeli uh, political leaders are accountable to their own constituents, at least their Jewish constituents. And so it's very hard for them to make you know, concessions to what they feel are concessions and they not be concessions in, in the abstract, but they feel it as such that they, this is the land they hold, they can give it up if you know. Yep. And, and follow through when 20% of the Jewish Israelis are fixated on opposing that. And most of the rest are like generally maybe would think it would be okay, but they're not passionately engaged. So it becomes very difficult to actually fulfill those agreements. And no pressure from the United States uh, meaningfully. That was always the case, but now particularly there's no pressure at all. So on just between them, it would it, it, resolving this through the occupation would require an Israeli leap of enlightened self-interest that is incredibly unusual mm. for a, uh, a parliamentary system. Mm. You know, it's, mm. just, I, it's just not going to happen. There has to be pressure. The Jewish Israelis, re enough of them really, 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 really want to keep those settlements and much of the West Bank and the Jordan Valley. And there's just no real reason for them to give it up. And so they won't. Now, what about the Gulf countries? Yeah. All right. The reason they've gotten closer to the Israelis, and we're talking about there are three in particular that are operative. This Bahrain is really a stalking horse for Saudi Arabia. It's not, uh, you know, it's it's in foreign and defense policy. It, it defers to us. So but there are three that are actively engaged in a, in a major way. I mean, Oman has very good relations with the Israelis, but it's not a major player. Kuwait right. is interested, but yeah, no, there are three that are important. Uh, Qatar, which has had the strongest relations with Israel, open relations of any of the Gulf countries. They have actually had an Israeli trade mission operating in yeah. Qatar in the 1990s. I mean, that was very close to diplomatic relations. It was, yeah. a, it was a lesser form of, it was diplomatic relations. It wasn't a full embassy, but it was the next best thing. Mm -hmm. And then the UAE and Saudi Arabia, which have developed, uh, both of them, uh, cooperative ties with Israel in terms of intelligence and certain kinds of military information and mm -hmm. cyber technology. Now, the reason that this has happened is that the Israelis and the Saudis and the Emiratis see the biggest threats. Sure. They identify the same biggest threats in the same way, especially yeah. after the fall of Aleppo. Right? It used to be uh, with regarding Iran. 
It yeah. used to be the Israelis were fixated on nuclear Iran, and they thought that the militia movements and like the what the Americans call malign regional behavior it was these these armed sectarian militias, Hezbollah and the Hashdi Shabi and all these groups, uh, even in a way the Houthis, but not really, but kind of mm-hmm. uh, that 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 was leverage on mm-hmm. the Iranians on the nuclear issue and the Gulf countries, the Saudis, Emiratis, etc., and even the Qataris before the boycott thought, okay, no, it's actually it's the militias that are the big problem and the nuclear issue is is leverage. But when Aleppo fell to the Assad regime, the dust settled. And the Israelis looked across and they saw a different Hezbollah. And they saw Hezbollah is no longer a Lebanese militia. It's, it's a regional vanguard of a network, including the Hashishat groups and Kataib Hezbollah and the Badr Corps and the Houthis. And, and they revised their view of the nature of the Iranian threat to much closer to the Gulf perspective that the mm. militia groups are an immediate threat at least as much as nuclear Iran because it's real and it's immediate and it's a big threat. It's not like a, a kind of a leverage. It's something they really want to do something about right away. So they see the threat in the same way and that the same threat and, and then post the Aleppo the same way, which is really important. And then in addition to that, there's the role of Turkey because both of them also share the view that yeah. Turkey is a rising hegemon, totally different uh, to the Iranian one, um, Sunni Islamist, but maybe more, less aggressive, slightly less predatory, maybe, maybe not, but much more powerful, potentially much more effective, able to potentially reach a lot more Arabs through, if there's no Arab thing, but there's at least Sunni Islamism. That they can play of, and it's you know there you've got now Turkey heavily engaged in northern Syria, heavily engaged in Libya, heavily engaged in a lot of so there's now two not Arab hegemons yeah. uh, throwing their weight around the Arab world, and and both and I think the Israelis also perceive that Turkey as a rising threat. So so because of this, yeah, they make they they have the same now. What that means is. There's a lot of stuff they're willing to do together behind closed doors. But I think the Israelis are hoping to have a kind of an alliance with these countries, but they Mm -hmm. can't. It's not going to happen because they're for three reasons. All three of these countries are held back. First of all, well, let me just say the Qataris are kind of out of it to some extent because the boycott put on them made them much more dependent on Turkey and Iran Mm -hmm. than they were before especially mm. Turkey, but also Iran for overflight routes and other things. Mm. And they're in no position to play the kind of games they, they want to with the Israel that they used to do mm. and uh, that they, uh, you know, would otherwise want mm. to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they're not less interested in building ties to the Israelis than the other two, than UAE and Saudi, but they're in no position to do it. So what about UAE and Saudi? Oh, by the way, it is really worth noting that in spite of everything I just said, the high point of Israeli diplomacy and Israeli um, uh, normalization, actual diplomatic normalization with the Gulf, was in the mid-1990s. Not now. Right. Why? Why? Because that was the high point of the peace process. Yes, that's exactly. What, exactly. That's what. Right. It's not a coincidence that sure. at the height of Oslo is when they hit their high, because these are still real issues for yeah. the Gulf rulers, and they're real issues for three reasons. 
The first reason is the obvious one. In politics, they, mm -hmm. you know, if they cozied up to the Israelis without getting anything on the occupation, uh, the left would attack them, the right would attack them, the nationalists would attack them, the religious would attack and they would be very exposed politically, domestically. It would undermine their credibility. Huh? The second reason has to do with values. And I mean, people roll their eyes and, are, and some people are kind of sociopathic and don't care, but you're talking about very large numbers of people ultimately. Mm -hmm. And when you put all societies together, decision makers, and they are Arabs, they are Muslims, they do care. If they could push a button and reverse what happened in 1947-40, they would do it. And you know, it's not the big factor, but it's there. The third reason, and then people can dismiss it, but I don't, I, I've seen, I think it's a fact. I know it's a factor. The third, and this is the big boy, and this is the one that everybody forgets, is the strategic threat. And the strategic threat, I mean that if they did that in an open way that it's obvious, it's not the political or the values, it's the strategic thing. In other words, what does that do to enhance the relative power of Iran, of Hezbollah, of Al-Qaeda, of Daesh, Turkey, of Qatar, of whoever their enemies are, and that this issue is a megaphone, fully charged batteries lying on the floor of the Arab world and anyone can pick it up and start shouting into it and win points immediately at their expense. And that they, will, they know also strategically that this issue, maybe it's calm now for various reasons, right? Palestinians remember the second father, they don't wanna go through that again, they don't know what to do with it. It's fairly calm. Mm. But it's not going to stay calm. They know also it's not going to stay calm. And this issue will be back and it will be very, very painful. And they know that they will not have a good night's sleep. And right. the security and, and peace they want until that occupation issue is dealt with. Mm. And there's some kind of agreement between, even an interim agreement between Israel and the Palestinians that is livable. And they need that. And but, so, uh, you know, yeah. as long as the Israelis are not willing to budge on this issue, they are not going to make progress with those countries in, in the open. No way. In that whole paradigm, which you really like, you you just really laid it out, the whole structure which is in place at the moment, within that, why isn't there some pressure mm. from the Gulf side? No. Because they do see some mutual interests, and you explain mm. them on a strategic level. Yeah. Why isn't there some sort of nudging to get to get to get the Israelis to at least offer something in return through the well, Palestinian problem. There is nudging. But we, OK, so there is nudging yeah. in the sense that they've made it very clear they can't go forward with what the Israelis want, which is a more open alliance with a rapprochement with relations if there isn't anything. So in other words, their nudging is withholding. Right. Mm -hmm. They don't actually have leverage over the Israelis. So mm -hmm. the Israelis go forward, right? Mm -hmm. And they say, let's let's have this. Let's have let's not just have a like a one guy visiting here and a journalist there. No, no, let's let's have a trade mission. Let's have a the answer yeah. is no. And here's yeah. the thing. From those countries' point of view, right? Yeah. Now to be cynical, because again, I talked about values, but you're still talking about cynical politicians, rulers, government. Governments and there is a cynical side to this as well. I mean big time uh, From a cynical point of view what they say to the Israelis in a roundabout way not in a direct way But in an indirect way and a message these Israelis have understood is we got from you what we need already 
We're not going to give you anything else. All we want is intelligence cooperation. We don't want your embassy in our country. We don't want an embassy in Tel Aviv or wherever. Screw that. What we want is intelligence. We want, you know, cyber. We want your, you know, technology, especially to do with the internet and, uh, and yes. that kind of stuff, and some, you know, imaging, uh, that. And we're getting that. So the hell with you guys. Now, if you are willing to come to the table and talk reasonably with Abu Mazen and be reasonable and cut this annexation crap, then maybe we would, you know. But until then, we're just not. We're not gonna. So at the and end so of the day, at the end of the day, yeah. Sorry, at the end of the day, the Israelis just don't feel any pressure to none. end this conflict. None, none, none. And I honestly don't think there's much the Saudis and the Emiratis or the Qataris could do right. to, to, or the Egyptians or anybody who, or the Jordanians who want this over for their own narrow personal selfish interests, right. uh, as well as other reasons that, that I don't think there's much anyone can do to force the Israeli hand. You know, you can be belligerent. Right? Iran is quite belligerent, at least with words and to some extent through Hezbollah and other things. Yeah, belligerent. It doesn't make the Israelis think twice about annexation. It doesn't. They don't sit around worrying about what Qaeda is going to say or you know what's yeah. Rahani or Zarif or Khamenei going to say or you know. Yeah. You know, they, you know they, they, they. I think honestly, um, the big problem here and the big problem at the heart of Oslo and the reason Oslo was never going to work is that it allowed the Israelis to keep entrenching the occupation, deepening it, build more settlements, de facto annexation of more and more territory and, you know, reduce the pressure on, on the Israelis, re reduce the, 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 get them out of the, of the trap they got into in the first intifada. Yeah. And and confront them with something they could really that would traumatize them, but that they actually strengthens their grip, which is a second You know, but I'm glad that you laid it out this way because I I wrongly assumed that certain Gulf countries, the three that in particular that you mentioned, yeah. uh, had more leverage, and that they I, were hesitating. But I didn't didn't see it that way. That they've actually already kind of got what they needed, they and now yeah. now it's in the Israeli. I think especially the, the Saudis and the Emiratis have what they really want from the Israelis. And it's, the Israelis don't have what they want, but they don't need what they're not getting. I mean, they can right. live with the situation. Right. And maybe the really frustrated party here is, in a way, is Qatar, because their instinct is to be more friendly to the Israelis. But there's no way they can do that as long as the boycott is continuing. Yeah, but that's a minor frustration. I mean, their problem is is really a big one. Like the boy, they can live with the boycott perfectly well now, but like in the long run, they can't live with it. So they've got a real problem in the long you run. You know, I'm. I mean, I'm fortunately I'm old enough to remember the, uh, and I mean all the hindsight aside, all the, all the critique aside, that moment in 1993, 1994, Arafat mm. and Rabin at the White House, Clinton in the middle. That, mm -hmm. that and I remember watching it. I actually remember watching it with my father, and yeah. I I could see from his eyes that this is special. Forget yeah. forget everything that happened. Forget all the problems with Oslo. Forget all the critique. The fact that America had a central role then, yeah. and yeah. at least at, at least appearing to try to end that conflict. And you reminded me of something when you said mm -hmm. uh, the, the mid '90s with uh, with the yeah. Sort of the warmest relations. And I, I remember, I mean, suddenly Morocco has relations. Uh, yeah. Tunisia's talking. And yeah. I mean, 
uh, Clinton arrives to Gaza first, right. doesn't go to Ben-Gurion, yeah. goes to Gaza. Right. And, you know, that has been missing for yeah. so long. And Absolutely. it's... I just, There's uh, two problems. Yeah, yeah. One is, yeah, no, no, you're, you're right to, to remember because there is a question of hopefulness. And that's really important because there's so, so much despair. And the despair in our era is rooted in reality. It's not, you know, this is not a neurotic symptom. This is true. <laughs> you know, this is yes. absolutely justified. In fact, if you weren't kind of at least partially despairing, uh, not not existential despair, but if you if you were optimistic, you would be very foolish. <laughs> you would not be looking yeah. clearly at, at the at the equation. I'm saying, yeah. OK. Now, so that's a loss. On the other hand, I remember that era very well. I was pretty skeptical of Oslo, mainly because I look at it and I see no obstacle to the increase of settlements. And I think that's the original sin. And that's the big problem with it. Also, the fact that uh, the part of the Israeli society that never liked it came to power and held power most of the time after Rabin was killed. And uh, I don't know how far Rabin would have gone, but... Most of the time with Netanyahu, and then even with Ehud Barak, they were not. Now, I want to I want to throw out a different memory, which mm -hmm. is 2000, the summer of 2000, Camp David, yes. right? The the meeting Ehud Barak, uh, right. Clinton again, good old yes. Clinton, and and Yasser Arafat, who didn't want to be there but was told to come. All right, and they have this this summit. And it's a total failure. And, you know, we could talk about that for 10 million years. But <laughs> I was I was actually with my dad mm. uh, in London. He was he was recovering from a stroke and I went to see him and I was spending a few weeks with him. You know. And he said to me, you know, I was a political scientist from AUB. And he said to me, well, you know, what do you think is going to happen? I said, well, I think it's going to take a long time. But my guess is that in the end, the Israelis will try to impose by force the kind of offer the Palestinians have refused at this conference, which is a limited state broken up with different things, with lots of Israeli annexations and a kind of state, you know, minus sort of thing with that. It's exactly what the Clinton, uh, the, the Trump proposal is. It's exactly where we're going 20 yeah. years later. And I mean, I, I think it, the, the big problem for the Israelis was they couldn't try this as long as the United States remained committed to a two-state solution. And the problem is that the, the, the good thing about, or the best thing about Oslo, is that uh, the main document, the Declaration of Principles from 1993, carves out these final status issues, including borders and uh, refugees and settlements and all these other areas, and says these are final status issues and can't be prejudiced, which means Annexation is, there's a treaty obligation signed yeah. by Israel, signed by the PLO, signed by the United States and yes. by Russia. A treaty obligation not to be annexing things, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, as long as the United States cared that it was a signatory to the DOP, mm -hmm. it was not going to let Israel start violating that treaty that they were both signatories. Now we have an administration that does not even know what the DOP is. Absolutely. You can't talk to it. They couldn't care less. And so now the, the, the fetters on the Israeli right are lifted. So we're back to that situation I was talking about before, where the only thing that holds the Israelis back is some kind of an American concern, which is now no longer um, 
no longer strategic or goal-oriented. It's more political. I say I, th I think Trump might hold them back now, but just because his plate's full, he doesn't want. I, I doubt he wants to deal with that. Um, but and and I think he thinks of this as a second-term thing. Well, yeah. Um, and potentially whatever enlightened self-interest they can muster. But human beings in, in, in large groups, in the millions, do not think in terms of enlightened self-interest. You know, they yeah. don't, that's how human beings operate, right? right. Human beings right. are, the, the collectivities behave a lot more like, uh, like children. You know, they know <laughs> what they want and they're going to get it. And, but you know, I have, I have, a couple of very little, I have a very little kid and, and it's really good that he doesn't have a lot of power <laughs> because <laughs> everyone would be massacred. <laughs> During a pandem pandemic, I'm sure he does have some power. <laughs> well, he had, no, but I mean, I mean the no, power no, I, of force. Yeah, of course, of so course. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know, a two-year-old doesn't yeah. think about, he doesn't understand. He wants something, he's going to get it. He's angry at you, you know, like that. And I think human collectivities tend to, you know, start acting like that, where passions yes. are involved. But you know, that decade from Madrid mm. to Oslo yeah. to Camp David, I mean, what, I mean, looking back now, it's sort of, it set the, it set the foundation to at least talk about yes. a dignified conclusion yes. to the Palestinian yes. cause, one that does not rob them of their rights, at least that it sort of allows also for the Israelis to get some of what they need in terms of security and all that, but that there's a that there's a dignified yeah. ending to a very, very, uh, very, very difficult chapter to modern Middle East history, and also that the Palestinians deserve it. It's not yeah. there's, there's no question about it. And you know what? Two decades later. It couldn't be worse. It really could yeah. not be worse. No, I mean, it's it's very it's 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 tragic. Yeah. Um, and I I think but I want to I want to just say one one final thing. Uh, one of the best scholars of this is Shibli Talhamir, is Sadat Center. And he has always maintained that U.S. relations with the Palestinians, diplomatic relations, political relations, that is to say the relationship between U.S. government and the PLO, were always primarily a function of the U.S. relationship with Israel. And I think history has vindicated recent events and past events, and it is, I think he's absolutely right on that. He, I mean, it's sort of something that one understands in a, in a kind of, um, unstated way in a liminal kind of way but, but when you hear it in those words and you process the data through that framework i think mm -hmm. you realize that he really nailed it and that's so that when the united states in pursuing a certain kind of relationship it wants to have with israel finds the palestinians and relationship with the palestinians useful then there's a big one insofar yeah. as as that's not the case, as now, there's no relationship with the PLO. Yeah. I mean, there's the, the, mission, the, the U.S. consulate in East Jerusalem is closed, and the PLO mission yeah. in Washington is closed, and there's, not, there's nothing. I mean, they meet, you like to discuss um, the security issues, but, but there's no real diplomatic relationship. Why? Because there's no need for it. There's no space for it in the current relationship between the Israeli government and this administration. And it it is... It really, it, it, I think it makes one, it, it puts 
the nature of the U.S. role in a, in a, in a really important context. The only thing I want to say is there are a lot of people who say, well, the U.S. is not the right broker. The U.S. is not an honest broker. Of course, the U.S. is not an honest broker. I mean, I couldn't have been more clear about that just now. I mean, it's not even a broker at all. But mm-hmm. it is a third party. Now, mm-hmm. there are many people who have said from the beginning until now, and everyone's the wrong one. But at the same time, it's the only one. It's not like the U.S. is fending off a huge parade of other international actors that want to do this. <laughs> right. right. That's the, true. The, the, the only other country that's shown any interest in playing this kind of role is France. And mm-hmm. France alone, without the rest of the EU, which has no interest, is not capable. It doesn't have the heft. It doesn't have the power to do it. And it can defend itself, but not more than that. Russia is not interested. China is not interested. The UN Secretariat cannot do it uh, without, you know, the blessing of the US, Russia and China. So, uh, the EU is not interested. Um, the Arab League has a very solid proposal, the Arab Peace Initiative. It's excellent. But, um, you know, again, there's not much they can, they, they haven't tried to push it that much. And there's not, I'd hard, be hard to know where to begin on yeah. that, frankly. Um, so the, my point is that, um, for Palestinians, Palestine, I mean, the, the PLO in particular, not, not so much the PLO, I mean, the PLO as the diplomatic arm of the Palestinians, came in for a lot of criticism from people for continuing to deal with the Americans, for continuing to accommodate the Americans, for always wondering, about what's Bush going to say? What's Clinton going to say? What's Obama going to say? What Even what's Trump going to say for a while? Now they don't fault that, but, you know, uh, you know, but the fact was that the Washington held the only hope they had yeah. for getting what they wanted. And that was a fact. And yeah. I'm not sure it's not true anymore. Now, there's no point in trying to pursue it with Trump. Um, and I don't know a Democrat like Biden, for instance, would would do to repair. I think a lot, he'd do a lot to repair what Trump has done, but I think he would leave a lot of bad things in place. Nobody's moving the embassy, not even Sanders, back to Tel Aviv. That's just not happening. Now, what you could do is clarify the statement and make sure that everyone understands that you were referring to West Jerusalem and East Jerusalem remains a final status issue. You could say that. Russia said that, and no one cared, mm-hmm. uh, because no one really expects Israel to get out of West Jerusalem, and the embassies in West Jerusalem. So you could put it that way, and at least salvage the, 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 the final status issues. You could reiterate your commitment to a two-state solution. I don't know if it can save anything. My point is just that um, I think people who uh, uh, are looking at the Palestinian options— can sometimes be very harsh on the PLO for accommodating yeah. the Americans. But yeah. truly, what option do they I mean, what are you going to get out of Moscow, Beijing, Brussels, uh, Riyadh, uh, sure. you know, Tehran? Who's going to deliver? But what you're could, But Shibli Salhami's uh, quote, which you, you, you echoed it. But yeah. Brilliant, man. But even you know, in these years, you have very competent, very uh, a very uh, disciplined and smart Palestinian Prime Minister Salam yeah, Fayyad, yeah. who can who can he can relate to the Americans, and the Americans can easily communicate ideas to him. Even yeah, then, yeah. I think what you were saying earlier it, it resonates. Of course, that 
I mean, it's it's up to the American relationship with Israel. It's yeah. not up to the Palestinians, it's not up to the Gulf no, countries, which you also right. kind of added to. You know, the Salam story is the, is the saddest of all because he, he, he had the best idea for how to use the PA, not the PLO. That's a whole other thing. The negotiations, national strategy, that's, that's something else. And he didn't really get involved in that. But what do you do with the PA? You've got self-rule in, you know, a small chunk of the West Bank, but it's where most of your people live and it's a lot of cities. What do you do with that? And his answer was, you build your state anyway. Yes. You know, yes. What the Zionists did. You create your institutions. You, you know, you, you, you don't you don't wait for the relationship that, to change. You yeah. don't wait yeah. for anything. You you create your nation, your your state in spite of yeah. the occupation in order to end it. It was it was impeccable. Here's yeah. the thing with though it because one of his biggest problems is to do that. You need money. And to get the money and to keep the money, you have to stop people from stealing it. <laughs> and that really annoys people. And you, and you you know, make the budget transparent and you make it clean and you cut down on graft and you cut and you really start annoying the political machinery out there. He's not a member of Fatah. He's not a member of the PLO. Not all of that. Israelis never liked him because they saw him as a threat. I mean, they liked him in a way because, you know, they like if he builds a hospital, that's one more thing they don't have to do. Yeah, but exactly. and, and certainly the security thing they liked a lot and they still like it. But they were always nervous about him because they knew he had a very good idea that if he really you know went with this, it could greatly strengthen the hand of the actual leaders now and, and the PLO. In, in the, the, so the big problem is that when the PLO went to the U.N., Twice, once to the Security Council and then once to the General Assembly, failed both times. Each time, especially the second time, what was attacked, the revenge by Israel and unbelievably by the United States, was to attack the budget of the PA, which was the raison d'etre for this guy, not a Fatah member and not a PLO official, to be the prime minister of the PA. And yes. without the money, they immediately, the, all the Fatah cadres and everyone who hated him and Hamas and everyone else just like chopped his, I mean, political head off. You know, they, they knocked him out immediately. He had no more raison d'etre to be the prime minister. Absolutely. Right. And yeah. that yeah. killed the whole project so that in a, in a certain sense, you can't convince me that the Americans and the Israelis were sympathetic to Fayyad because they took him out. Whether that was their intention or not, I do not know. But that was the effect. And they must have known. They're not that stupid. I mean, really, they're not that dumb. If it was a Trump administration, I might say, all right, they're so dumb, they don't even know what they're doing. But not, not the administrations we're talking about here. The, you know, no. You're right. Because I wanted to end it on three positive points. Okay, uh, great. Uh, okay. The first, first is that uh, proof that I enjoy speaking to you is that we kind of Agreed on a 30-minute conversation. We're approaching yeah, 90 minutes. Hour. That's the first indication. Second indication. Yeah, 30 minutes became 90 minutes. And, and we could go on. I mean, it's been yeah. great. Well, that's the second point, which is you're a fellow Ras Beiruti. You yes, kind of talked about your father at AUB. When we speak again, I hope we dive into that because that's the yeah, subject. Yeah, let's I, I love talk to about that. that. I was looking yeah. at maps of Manara and Ras Beirut and Amin Raisite, really detailed maps. It was really yes. great. So I'd love to talk about it. Yeah. That will be the next episode we do. And the third point, which is something I only found out by accident after 90 minutes of speaking to you, is uh, that you're, you're an Andy Warhol fan. And it's oh, been next to your... Yeah. yeah. And you've oh, got... The, the catalog resonates too over there, yeah. I Those are prices. 
So if I ever really branch out into other terrain, we'll talk about Andy Warhol. <laughs> sure. All right. Thanks for your time during the middle of the pandemic, and uh, I wish you the best during this time. Let's do it again. I really appreciate it. It's Look forward great. to it. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. And a friendly reminder to help support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box below. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan.